I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Well, the Rain Man comes with his magic wand, and the judge says, Mona can't have no bond. And the walls collide, Mona cries, and the Rain Man leaves in the Wolfman's disguise. I want to be your lover, baby. I want to be your man. I want to be your lover, baby. I don't want to be hers. I want to be yours. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Fu Wheel and Rob Kelly. And joining me this week to talk about I Want to Be Your Lover, an outtake from 1966's Blonde on Blonde, is fellow Bobcat Robert Reed. Hi, Robert. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. There's a lot of Roberts flying around here. It was you, me, and Bob. So we got a lot of... Never going to have too many Roberts. I, I completely agree <laughs> with that. Um, so, so again, thank you so much for, for being here. So uh, before we get to the song, like I just mentioned, it's going to be I Want to Be Your Lover. Uh, I have to ask you, like, how did you become a fan of Bob? Gosh, you know, I grew up in Tulsa home of the Bob Dylan archives nice. and the Bob Dylan center. And we were one of three test market cities for MTV. So 40 years ago this month, August of maybe today, August in, uh, uh, in 1981, you know, we got MTV and it really changed our lives. I mean, I was a cold war kid, teenager, and we knew, and, you know, in amidst all the kind of the British new wave music and, you know, weird Rolling Stones videos and uh, David Bowie videos, there was a new video coming out by this guy that MTV really was really speaking highly of, Bob Dylan. And <laughs> I had never, I mean, I think I had heard like a Rolling Stone or Tangled Up in Blue or Lay Lady Lay on the radio, didn't know who it was. And it was Sweetheart Like You. And uh, so this is a couple years into MTV. And I saw that video and I was mesmerized by the performance. I mean, first of all, Bob seems to have his hair permed a little bit like the lion <laughs> from Wizard of Oz. <laughs> he had very weird lyrics, you know, crawling across cut glass to make a deal. That was not the typical lyrics in early MTV. But what really stuck out to me was just how angry he seemed. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> he shows the entire band before he shows himself in that video. I think it's a fascinating video. Great song. But. To answer your question, I mean, I didn't become a, friend, a fan then, but I, I became watchful of Bob Dylan then. Then in college, later in the 80s, uh, we studied, I had a literature teacher who was a freak, a uh, Dylan freak, and we learned uh, Like Rolling Stone lyrics, Tambourine Man lyrics as literature, and I got greatest hits. And then a couple years later, I still wasn't a real fan, and then Bootleg Series 1 to 3 came out. And in one swoop, I said, okay, that's it. I'm consciously, I've decided I am going to become a Dylan fan. And I just went and bought Biograph and Bootleg Series 1 to 3 and haven't looked back since. And so that's wow. early 90s. But it was a conscious effort, despite these kind of awakenings that I had at different times. That, like, this guy is interesting. But that was, that's when it started for me. Why do you think it was a conscious effort? Why do you think it was, you were sort of telling yourself you are going do, to do it? I don't know. I do this uh, sometimes. It's like, oh, yeah, I really need to get into the Beach Boys. And then, like, you know, six months later, I have every Beach Boys album. You know, it's just <laughs> like... I am a little bit of obsessive fan that I want to know their mistakes. I want to know uh, where things fall in chronology. So I, I, I decide that, okay, it's time. You know, I've kind of flirted with being a Dylan fan, you know, it's time to get deep. And I really do think that's a perfect way to start biograph in that first bootleg series. I just, you know, it just gave me, you know, some of the hits, it gave me uh, things like She's Your Lover Now, which is immediately one of my favorite songs. And um, I don't know, I just do that. I just do that a lot, you know, and particularly for things that involve a little more 
uh, kind of investigation, you know, uh, it's not immediately a pop hit that you're going to just, oh, okay, I really like this. I'm going to go buy this minute work album, you know, Dylan was something <laughs> else. And uh, I don't know. That's just the way I've done things with music and a lot of things. Fair enough. I mean, Biograph and the Bootleg Series is a great one-two punch because Biograph is you're getting the hits. Yeah. I mean, you're getting other stuff, but you're getting the hits. But then the Bootleg Series is, of course, the alts and all the stuff that, you know, because I, I would imagine that someone coming to Bob just, initially through the bootleg series it would be hard because if you don't know the the original track you know the famous ones it's hard mm-hmm. to appreciate the alts uh as much if you don't know where what they're alting from uh but biograph you had that because you had all the big songs so that was really yeah. that's just that's jumping into the pool neck deep but it's perfect because then you're just on your way i just yeah i think that you, you're right though about it and i did have the greatest hits before but um you needed to have tangled up in blue Yep, And you needed to have Lay Lady Lay to understand why this alternative version of If You See Her Say Hello might be better <laughs> than the, the Tangled Up or than the Blood on the Tracks version. You know, <laughs> so to me, it was like this perfect mix. And I just, I don't know, you just jump right into the mythology and uh, of Dylan right off. And, you know, those were, it was a great duo, I think, for sure. Absolutely. Have you seen him live? I did. I actually saw Dylan before I became a big Dylan fan and I designated Bobcat with a membership card. <laughs> I saw him uh, in 1990, uh, G Smith on guitar and I got backstage uh, my what? first concert. Yeah. What? Um, it, is, <laughs> it doesn't sound, it isn't as good as it sounds. Uh, not because, jealous at all, Robert, not jealous yeah. at all. Well, I I'm jealous of what you think this might've been because it wasn't that um, I was writing uh, for, I was the entertainment editor for the university of Oklahoma newspaper in college. And I got an interview with the opening band wire train from San Francisco and I went with a friend and we got to be backstage before and after the concert, but we could not be backstage if Dylan was in the building, <laughs> okay. but I technically was backstage. And, uh, after the, the concert, you know, we saw this and it was like, wow, yeah, you know, uh, tangled up in blue sounds a lot different. Blowing on the wind sounds a lot different. I didn't know that he changed songs live so much, enjoyed it, had good seats. And afterwards I was talking to wire train, <laughs> a band I don't really know that well. And they gave us our, their beer that we took home and all that, but, uh, <laughs> they were real nice, but they had never met Dylan. You know, so I didn't, <laughs> I didn't feel bad, you know, that first concert, I totally didn't earn this proximity <laughs> to his guitar pick, but, uh, you know, I, it was an interesting way to start for sure. <laughs> that, that would make you feel not as bad if you realize the, the guys that have been touring with Bob for the last couple of months, haven't met Bob yet. <laughs> like, all right. Yeah. I'm not doing that. So That's oh wow. Now, so what did you think of the show? Because seeing a Dylan concert before you become a Dylan fan is not always the most advisable way of doing that. I don't know. I, I kind of don't know. I think I saw that figure a little bit like that guy, that angry guy in the sweetheart like you video. I knew this was important. <laughs> I knew there was something emanating from the stage that I should pay close attention to. It's been so long, 31 years that I don't really have clear memories of it. I do remember someone behind me trying to sing blowing in the wind, but it was so changed that they messed up a lot, <laughs> you know, and I was going, and I didn't know what to think of that. Uh, you know, but, uh, um, I have, I've actually only seen him two more times since then, which is absurd. I mean, it is absurd. I saw him like about five years later at Roseland in New York general mission. And I saw him on the Tempest tour in Portland, Oregon. Okay. And so I've, I've not, you know, it's an embarrassing, uh, 
little experience with him live. And I would just love to go back to that first one because I had the best seats than that one. And, uh, but can't do it. No wait, You said you saw him about four years later at the Roseland. Yeah. Do you remember what night? Cause I went to one of those shows. Yeah. I was wondering if you did. It was Cheryl Crow opening, right? Right. I think right. The last night, I think Bruce Springsteen showed and up. Neil Young and came out. Neil yes. Right. That's the one I, I was at. I did not see that show. Okay. I was furious. Now, I have a habit of going to Dylan shows, and I, I don't know if you can say that, I've only been to three concerts, but I go to con- Dylan concerts generally with people that aren't really into Dylan. And so it affects, you know, like if, if he tours again, I'm, I'm going to see at least three shows, and I'm going one to, by myself, and I'm going to spring for whatever it costs to get good tickets. But, but um, so like the, the Roseland show, I think it may have been the second one the night before Springsteen. I thought it was excellent. I remember yep. being just going, this is great. And um, no one else thought that. And, and it kind of affects your, you know, it affects you a little bit. You know, just that they were, they loved Dylan, but they weren't into this later songs of Dylan era or whatever we are now after Shadow Kingdom, what we call, you know, <laughs> 89 on, you know, and it actually took me a long time to realize that this era of Dylan post 89 in many ways is my favorite and that what how lucky it is that he's putting out new music up through Rowdy that that is going to mean something to you the rest of your life. But I was with people that did not have that feeling. They were thinking 65, 66 or bust, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it affected how I saw the concerts for sure. I can understand that. I've been to a couple of Dylan shows with people that were just going with me and they weren't fans. And I could tell they were not having a good time because yeah. of this, you know, wheezy racket that they heard on the stage. I'm, I'm in ecstasy. Cause you know, I'm like, Oh, he's singing whatever obscure song I'm excited about. And they're just kind of like, um, okay. And it does, it does, I don't want to say ruins it, but it does take away a little bit because, you know, I don't want them to be miserable, but I'm also like third encore. Yay. And they're, they're looking at their watches like, all right, all right, is he going to sing something I can recognize? Like, no, probably not. He's, he's probably not going to do that. Even if it's a song that you've heard of, you're probably not going to recognize it. So, And hopefully not. You know, I'm to the point yeah. where I don't want that. You know, I, I want these obscure songs, you know, I'll remember you. I'd probably just go berserk if you played a <laughs> song like that, you know? That'll, well, that'll lead into the a question I ask you at the end of the show. But before that, <laughs> why don't you explain to, to everybody what you do for a living? Because I found it very interesting. Well, I, I spent the last 20 some years as a travel writer. I uh, worked for uh, Lonely Planet. I was a digital nomad at National Geographic. Um, I, I traveled around the world a lot. I lived in Vietnam a couple of times, lived in Australia, lived in London and uh, New York. Um, and so I'm now back in Oklahoma. So this is the post-COVID area and I'm working at uh, the local PBS station. And so not travel now, but yeah. So for, you know, 20 some years, you're always on the road, you know, um, mm-hmm. I mean, just constantly, you know, and uh, I was really lucky, you know, did guidebooks and articles and videos for 20 some years. I don't even know how that happened. That is fascinating. I, I mean, I, I, I find that just really, really interesting. Uh, part of it is because I have not traveled very much at all. And it's, it is one of sort of the regrets of my life that I haven't done that. But the reason I, I'm asking about it is obviously, as we all know, Bob tours incessantly, except for, you know, obviously the last year. And it's something that he doesn't need to do, obviously financially. He must do it because he wants to do it. And he, you know, schleps his 80-year-old body all over the four corners of the globe. Uh, If he wanted to, I'm sure he could just play America and make just as much money. But no, he goes and he plays in Reykjavik, you know, and he plays in, (laughs) uh, you know, these uh, small little parts of the world that you've like never heard of, you've heard of, but most people probably not heard of. 
And think about that, um, that comment I think Rick Steves made about travel where he said that, that traveling broadens your mind mm-hmm. uh, because you are in, in, interacting with different kinds of people and different lifestyles and different cultures. And it can't help but change your perspective. And, you know, we know that Dylan has not fallen into the trap that a lot of rock stars at his level have fallen into, which is the whole like tour bus, concert hall, hotel, tour bus, concert hall, you know, like that life to where they're not experiencing life anymore. They're just living this very rarefied life and they don't get to like go out and just do regular things like regular people because Mm -hmm. they are kind of like, you know, shunted off into this special kind of life that, that only people have, again, at that level live. But Bob has consciously avoided that. Uh, we, you know, we've heard constant stories about him walking around towns, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, he got arrested in New Jersey, not that, long, you know, a couple of years ago in Jersey, everything's legal as long as you don't get cut. Uh, you know, I mean, so this is a guy that obviously values seeing the cultures and the places that he's visiting. And I mean, man, on a side note, man, could Bob write one hell of a travel novel, like a travel book oh, if yeah. he wanted to? Holy jeez. Oh, yeah. But I, I'm sort of interested in, in, in your perspective on this. Of like, what is it you feel you've gained from doing that, from spending so much time? I mean, I know it's your, I know it's your profession, but obviously it's because you must love to do it too, because otherwise it would be, would be hell on earth to keep me traveling all over the place. That's uh, a big question. I mean, he talks about no direction home, right? And I, mm. I think in a weird way, the, the, it's all direction home. Is what travel is. I mean, I, I think that I learned over the years that no matter how far I went or how lost I got or how how um, different the places I went were, that what it did was inform where I'm from. Um, and so it, it, in a way, the ultimate destination is understanding where you're from. Um, and I don't mean to contradict Bob Dylan's lyric, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but in a way, um, I, I have often treated where I go is um, uh, looking at what happened there and then being there in the present and how that kind of changes my impression of something that happened there. You know, X marks the spot. You know, I actually went, I went to Winnipeg and I took the Neil Young tour. There's a guy that does these Neil Young tours and uh, I made a little video about it, but I went to Neil Young's house where Bob Dylan showed up one day and the people living there, had been away and they drove up and there was a strange guy standing out with cowboy boots outside. And he just said, this was Neil Young's house. And they, they, I think that they knew exactly who it was immediately, but they let him in and he wanted to go up and see where Neil Young's room was and what his view was (laughs) in his childhood room. He wanted to see the view out the window, right? I'm fascinated I'm fascinated that Bob Dylan did that. I think it's hilarious and I totally get it because it's like, oh yeah, uh, I I retraced Lincoln's steps one time because he had a girlfriend when he was young who died and he used to go and cry at the cemetery and I wanted to track down the cemetery that's now in the middle of a cornfield in central Illinois and I went there, it was totally absurd trying to find this thing and you go there and it's like, oh yeah, Lincoln wept here, right? And there's just something about that that makes me kind of feel strangely closer to Lincoln in a way. And I know it's silly, but but it kind of does. And I feel that like 
all over the place. And, and I often use travel as that X marks the spot, go to a place like that and see if it changes your understanding of it. And then when you come home, you end up seeing where you're from in a slightly broader way. You know, I, I don't, you know, travel has absolutely changed my life without a doubt. You know, no, no, no question about it. That's fantastic. I love that Bob is like a, a musical uh, archivist uh, himself, even though obviously he is someone that people use as the subject of their archiving. But I love that he wants to look out the, the view that Neil Young had. Like, that's just fascinating uh, that he feels like he's going to learn something about Neil that he can't learn from just talking to Neil Young, mm-hmm. which he could do, mm-hmm. you know, he could just yeah. call Neil. Hey, Neil, what about this? You know, what was your view? You know, but no, he needs to go see it. That's really, and it's, I'm sure that Bob would dismiss people that want to do that for him, but yeah. here he is, here he is doing it for it's, other people that he likes. It cracks me up so much. I, I you know, I feel like, I, I don't know if I, I would ever really want to meet Bob Dylan. You know, like I get mm-hmm. asked that sometimes. Oh, what would you say to Bob Dylan? Do you want to meet Bob Dylan? I was like, I don't know. Yeah. But I do think I have something I could talk to him about. I, could, I would talk to him about travel. I really would. And I think that it would be, a, I think that's the kind of way that you might end up having a conversation. I'm legitimately interested. Like in the, that Rolling Thunder documentary, when he's talking about going to Spain, before he plays that one more cup of coffee and he's talking about that, that event in Spain that's on his birthday. And of course I did not believe him and I looked it up and it is on his birthday. He's not lying. (laughs) And I was just going, Oh yeah. Yeah. You probably would, if you were talented as he is write a song like that based on being there. And I kind of believed it, you know, that story in a a documentary filled with lies and fabrications. And I just think it would be fascinating to hear, if he'd be willing to talk just about places he's been, what he's learned, where he wants to go next and just, Oh, that'd be a great question. Free. Yeah. I'd love to know. Yeah, that would, right. That would be, you would, you would not want to uh, encounter him where like you were the one who's going to be like, Oh, Bob, you're so awesome. He doesn't want to hear that. We know that he doesn't want to yeah. hear that. It makes, and it, you know, it may, it embarrasses him. So yeah, you'd want to talk about something. That, and yeah, like I said, he would write, he could write amazing travel manuals if he mm-hmm. wanted to. I mean, yeah. my Lord, like if he ever wanted to write like his version of Steinbeck's travels with Charlie, I mean, he would write an amazing book. I would love it. Seeing all these corners on the tour bus and just seeing America and the photos he's probably taken and the drawings he's done. It's be unbelievable. Again, we're, we're always constantly asking Bob for more things, you know, <laughs> he's not, exactly. giving us enough. He's, not, he's, he's doing, you know, uh, live stream concerts and new albums at 79 mm-hmm. years old, but we're still like more Bob, more, <laughs> we have more yeah. stuff from you. It's, we are it's, just we're terrible. It's been, a year, it's been a year since he's had a new song. It's, it's oh, overdue, Bob. Come on, Come on Bob. What are you doing? He's sitting around. <laughs> Jeez. What are you doing? David Crosby just put out an album. What's your excuse? <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, that, again, that, that's, that's fascinating. I'm really interested. And it, it's, it's so interesting. I used to work at a bookstore and I, we had our Lonely Planet books, mm-hmm. you know, and as soon as you mentioned it, I was like, oh, wow, I remember those books. <laughs> you know, I was fascinated. I used to look through them at all the places that I will probably never get to see. Um, but uh, that, all right, that is, that is really cool. So, all right, let's talk about I Want to Be Your Lover, an outtake from Blonde on Blonde. Uh, one of his more obscure songs that appeared on Biograph, of course. So you just mentioned that you, that you bought Biograph. So w- why do you want to talk about I Want to Be Your Lover? Oh, man. You know, I, I think, you know, the song gives me joy. It just gives me just utter, utter joy. When he says, I don't want to be hers, I want to be yours. It's, and by the way, in Oklahoma, that rhymes. <laughs> hers and yours rhymes. Uh, there's an exclamation point. There's just, the song is like this lustful romp. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it feels to me like all the musicians, the Hawks, I guess, are buzzed 
It's kind of, I know a lot of Blonde and Blonde was recorded till seven in the morning. This feels like midnight. <laughs> feels like there's a hundred people watching them. It's direct from the soundboard, mono recording, plug straight in. Uh, it's compressed sound. Just utter joy. It makes me so happy. There's only three notes. I mean, the verse is one note, right? <laughs> it's just playing that Johnny Cash, don't, 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 you know, just on a G for the whole verse. And, but it is just so joyful and it makes me happy. And I never listen to it only once in a row. I always listen to it more than once. I, I have to hear it again. But so I like, I want to talk about just because I think that it is, it is such a great little song that people don't know. I think it's a, a lot better than crawl through, you know, uh, would you crawl through? Oh, can you please window? crawl out your window? Yeah, thank you. That, that was a failed single in late 65. This should have been the failed single in 65, late 65. I mean, I, they recorded like a month earlier. I love it. But it's also that fascinating window between 65 first electric year recording in New York with New York musicians. Um, he sounds 65, 1965. And then, but lyrically, it's very much kind of looking forward to what Blonde on Blonde would be. Oh, totally. Yes. And, and so it's this kind of funny passing of the baton. And then the song title, the song chorus is, could be borrowed from that early kind of unimportant Beatles song that the Stones happened to record as their first single, I Want to Be Your Man, a few years before. And so it kind of invites the whole conversation about Dylan Beatles. So there's so much in a weird way to talk about this little song that no one heard for 20 years. Uh, and I just love it. Cameron Crowe mentions that in the liner notes to Biograph that I want to be your man is he said, it's the only song recorded by both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, which is not accurate. There are other songs that they both have covered cover versions and stuff. But mm -hmm. yeah, I think, I think uh, I want to be your lover, babe. I want to be your man certainly evokes certain Beatles songs kind of. And we know that Bob was a big fan of the Beatles, you know, the, Bob thought what they were doing was really interesting. And I like what you said about that it feels like a sort of half step between Highway 61 and Blonde on Blonde because, again, lyrically, it's a very much, to me, Blonde on Blonde. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it, there's, there's, we'll quote some of the lyrics here. The, the next verse is, well, the undertaker in his midnight suit says that the masked man ain't you cute. Well, the masked man, he gets up on the shelf and he says, you ain't so bad yourself. And then there's the chorus again. Well, mm -hmm. jumping Judy can't get no higher. She has bullets in her eyes and they fire, which is what a line. Rasputin, right. he's so dignified. He touched the back of her head and then he died. So the, lyrically, uh, when you've got the, this, this chorus where he's talking to the woman or the person of his, his affection, but he's referring to this person that he's with that he doesn't want to be with, recalls visions of Johanna mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and that kind of thing of like, I'm, you know, I'm with Louise, but I don't want to be, but I'm thinking of Johanna. But at the same time, you've got lines like Undertaker in his midnight suit. Well, if that sounds familiar, just go to I Want You, which has got mm -hmm. a dancing child with his Chinese suit. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this song is, you could, almost like what he did when the um, Telltale Signs bootleg series came out and you heard so many of the Time Out of Mind songs and you saw that he was dropping lines out from one song to the next. He was pulling a, a line out of this song and putting it in another song. I feel like that's what he's doing here. But the sound... I mean, the, in terms of the beat, this to me, this would have fit more on Highway 61. Yeah, I don't think he was wrong not pursuing it and putting it on Blonde on Blonde. In a way, at my count, Blonde on Blonde has 13 of 14 triad songs. There's 13 <laughs> songs. Everything but Rainy Day Women has some reference to a rival of a, a past lover or 
being with the wrong woman or whatever it is, uh, all of them. So this has that, but I don't, I, it's actually the start of those decayed relationships that he talks about on Blonde and Blonde with exception of Sad-Eyed Lady. It's like all of them are kind of frayed relationships. This is the, the, the you know, the start of it. And, and so I, I think it's, it's okay. It does feel like a prequel to I Want You. But by, by the way, I want to say, I want to stop for a second because right before we started recording, I listened to the song for the 743rd time <laughs> and I heard something different. And I don't think he says masked man. I think he says madman. Hmm. And I listened to the deluxe version on Cutting Edge and this version. I think he says, says to the madman, ain't you cute? And I, I'm actually mad about that because all the characters are disguised until you get to Phaedra. Phaedra is, is the key, I think. And by the way, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but Phaedra is the key <laughs> to this. She's not disguised. And then, but the masked man, if he's a madman, I don't know if he's disguised or not. So it kind of throws me off. But I think he says madman. I listened to it like six times in a row really quickly before we started recording. Hmm. I was like, oh, I never heard that. Is it mad? I don't know. Maybe it does. Well, he may say that, but then of course, when they transcribed it, Somebody was like, ah, mask, uh, mask, man. It makes more sense to say madman because the mask man, he gets up on his shelf. That's not really a phrase. The mask man. You would might say the masked man, like yes. he says in the second True. line. True. Uh, but yeah, geez, I've never noticed when I think about God, I've only listened to Blonde on Blonde 10,000 times <laughs> that all of the songs, except for Rainy Day, are all about triads in they some are. respect. You, you mentioned the uh, recording of this. You said that it was, what, what did you say? It was uh, right from the soundboard? Yeah, well, it, it feels like it, a mono recording. Oh, a mono like recording, it's, it's funny. You know, and it's like, a, it feels like it's just straight from the soundboard and a live recording, you know, that, you know, I honestly, I, I want to, you know, I don't know if that's Levon Helm on drums or if it's, uh, is it Gregory Bob or something or Bobby Gregory that was- Bobby Greg, Bobby, Bobby Greg, Bobby yeah. Greg. And so I don't know, because it's right around that timeline when Levon left and when Bobby came in to replace him in the Hawks. And I, so I don't know who's on drums, but the drums are sloppy and I love it. I mean, after the Jumpin' Judy verse, the, there's, or after that chorus, the third chorus, he's kind of rattling, you know, it's a galloping beat, kind of shuffling goes to the snare and it's barely staying afloat. The song <laughs> is about to tip over and it just kicks in goom, goom, and it goes back to the G and it's just so beautiful that it almost makes me cry. And it's just such a, it, and the song makes me, you know, it's, um, I, I did want to mention that if, if Dylan is playing the second electric guitar part, it might be his best and most important electric guitar part that I know of. Uh, because there's, at the beginning of the song, you hear this little thing come in with that kind of almost like a Rolling Stone, doo -doo -tsh, you know, like rim shot at the beginning to start it. And then you have the, the guitar and everything's playing off that little Johnny Cash, almost country beat. But then you have this little, and it's it's up on a capo, so he's like playing it up high, and this ringing, and it sounds like a siren to me. And I think that's Dylan playing it. I think he's playing a G way up the neck, and um, and it sounds different, and it sounds like this alarm. And so when I hear the song, I see like this horse carriage being pulled through this shadowy street. <laughs> racing from something or to something around things almost falling over and that little siren on the back is like Dylan cheekily in the back of the you know of the wagon kind of ringing that alarm and so it just it's it has that funny uh thing to me that just on a sonic level you know whether it's recorded you know straight from the soundboard or whatever it is there's just something about the performance that I think is one of the best I think everyone is just completely on one of the things about this song that it, to me is distinctive, and, and again, my knowledge of 
how music is recorded or even how it's played uh, is still, I know nothing about it. And, and, but like in this track, he sounds, he sounds further away. If that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Like his, his voice, his vocal is not as front and center Mm -hmm. uh, as some of the other tracks. And is that what, is that from the way it was recorded? Is that you, as far as you could understand it? Because it's it, it it to me it, again, and I know nothing about it. It almost sounds like it's what well, they all did it live. We all know that Bob. That's how Bob did the songs. But it feels like that the mic is picking up his vocal from some further away distance, as opposed to him being right on top of it and, and singing directly into it. I think that's good. I I wonder if there's kind of like this weird rough mix. I mean, so in 65, 66, everyone is mixing mono. And so stereo was just a fad. So the primary mix were mono recordings. So that's why you like to get Dylan and Beatles and Stones mono up until around 67, 68, because it's the better sound because they prioritized it. And stereo was basically seen as like 3D TVs, some newfangled thing that ah, just give it to the intern. They can just throw the the stereo mix together. (laughs) And quite literally that happens. So sometimes you'll hear Mick Jagger all the way in the left channel and the drums and guitar all the way in the right, just horrible mixes and stuff. And so I wonder that this is a mono, it, it appears to be a mono mix to me, that it was just kind of a rough mix that they can't go back. You know, it's just like, that's all they have. Okay. And, it, and it sounds like the reason why I think about the soundboard is like the live recording. Often they'll just plug in the soundboard and then they, you know, you have the technology now to obviously mix it after the fact and turn up guitars or whatever. I don't think it's that kind of recording. I have no idea, but it feels like that it was just one and done and that's what you got. And I think that's a good observation about the vocals being a little low in the mix. You know? Yeah, it's just right. It's just when I remember the first time I ever heard it, it just felt like, oh, wow. I'm like, this is probably what it would have sounded like if I was seeing him live and I was seven or eight rows back. It just has, it's his vocal is just more at the same level as everything else. But so if you're saying it's the mix is that he just wasn't mixed up or mixed, excuse me. He wasn't sort of, the vocal wasn't dialed up the way it would normally be, which is why he sounds again, like it said, it almost does sound like a live performance it in does. some ways. It really does. Um, so, all right. Well, that's interesting. Now, do you think, uh, well, you can do the, the other verse we haven't uh, quoted yet. He says, well, Phaedra and her looking glass stretching out upon the grass. Now, of course, he doesn't sing that mm-hmm. on the official BobDone.com. It's stretching out upon the grass, but she, he sings when she lays upon the grass. Mm-hmm. Again, I wonder why you would even bother to change mm-hmm. it because this was copyrighted in 1971. So six years later, why, why are they bothering to still change it? But okay, she gets all messed up and she faints. That's because she's so obvious and you ain't. So Love again, kind of, a, kind of a nasty thing to say about poor, poor Phaedra there. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. Well, what is, I mean, okay, so, I mean, you're talking about like, it's a little mean, <laughs> I think, it's like these, yeah. these lyrics a little. So, I mean, what is it about that that, that, that get, brings you to tears almost? Because like I said, it almost, oh, man. Well, the thing I like about I Want You which is we, we covered mm-hmm. on the show uh, with, with my pal Tara is to me, I want you is just sweet. Like there's no anger at this other person uh, that, that they're not the person he's looking to be with. He's just a direct devotional, which I really like this. I like this song and I like the hard driving, the pile driving of the drums, but it does have just that kind of slightly nasty edge again to Phaedra and stuff, which, you know, yeah. again, depending on your point of view. Well, I didn't know any of this, but I looked up Phaedra and Phaedra was cursed to fall in love with her stepson, Hippolytus, who I think Dylan is in the song. 
And Hippolytus falls in love with Artemis, who's Apollo's twin, the goddess of hunt, the goddess of chastity, who is very beautiful and um, uh, had devoured her entire life to being a virgin. And she had tons of suitors, tons and tons and tons and tons of suitors and, uh, you know, rebuffed them all. Right. And so I find it really interesting that um, that he criticizes Phaedra for being obvious. Right. That's that is that's he's he's just and I'm holding in my hand right now. This is how dorky I am. A Bob Dylan Center, Tulsa, Oklahoma pencil, because I bought the Dylan pencils. (laughs) And on the back side, it says life is about creating yourself. Right. A quote from the uh, Rolling Thunder uh, documentary. Life is about creating yourself. I think he's mad at Phaedra for being obvious. She's looking in the looking glass. She's not hiding. She's falling in love. uh, And and she's um, and everyone in this song basically is wearing a disguise. I mean, the right. Rainmaker is, you know, white magic, Wolfman's disguise. Undertaker's going out on town with a midnight suit. There's the mask or Madman. Jumpin' Judy has bullets in her eyes. Makes you think of uh, Medusa a little bit. Rasputin is dignified. I mean, he was a Russian mystic who didn't bathe since he left Siberia. This guy is <laughs> not dignified in any way. That is a disguise Rasputin's wearing. And he kept touched- not dying. That's the other yeah, thing I remember. Kept not dying. And he touches the back of her head in a dive, which is, I have to say that, my girlfriend, I asked her about that line. This is a tangent about touching the back of her head and he died, which I think is really funny. So you can't approach her from the front if it's a Medusa-like thing with her bullets in her eyes, and et cetera. Oh, but, wow. I right? never thought of that. And, and so I was going, why did he die? And she said, look up chakras. And so I, I did something I've never done before. And I was on chakra sites and there's apparently seven main chakras. Right. There's an eighth secret chakra. Some say the most powerful chakra, and I say this because I don't know it, but it's the Bindu chakra, which is for the fountain of eternal youth. So Rasputin, who was apparently so hard, he was poisoned twice. He was shot. Shot. The river. Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't believe this story. They were trying to demonize him. But, but anyway, he's apparently very difficult to die. He was, a, uh, um, he was in with the last czar, and he was trying to help the last czar's heir. Alexei, who had a blood disease. These are true stories. And, and, and he, was, he offered him a lot of comfort, but there was rivals in St. Petersburg. They, they assassinated him, but he was apparently, according to the story, very difficult to kill. He touches the back of the head of Jumpin' Judy, who is, by the way, a song title from the um, Alan Lomax recordings of like chain gangs in the 30s. There was a song called Jumpin' Judy. And um, my friend Tom Cobb, music librarian at University of Wisconsin, I asked him about this. He's like, you know, he sent me the notes that Alan, uh, that Lomax had written. And he said that every, he heard it all over the South, Jumpin' Judy, Jumpin' Judy, Jumpin' Judy. And no one knew who Jumpin' Judy was, which I find fascinating that it was this mysterious character. But if Rasputin talks, you know, touches the back of her head because she can't approach her from the front and dies because he was reaching for Fountain of Youth or something. I don't know. You know, who knows? I, Dylan, by the way, has no idea of any of this. I think he's just throwing out things, mm-hmm. but it's fun to deconstruct it. But, um, but, but back to Phaedra, I'm sorry. I got on a tangent. Oh, no, no, not at all. Phaedra, I think is, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Calliope, you know, that, you know, doesn't belong to anyone. Why don't you give her to me? Give her to me. Dylan is going for the ultimate, you know? And so I see this as ultimately a pretty positive song. I mean, it's a pretty, it's lustful for sure, but he's just going after the unattainable love, you know, in some way. And it's just, it's kind of sweet in a way. I mean, poor Phaedra, you know, but, um, but she did lie about Hippolytus in the story and had Hippolytus killed. 
So, you know, if that makes you feel better that Hippolytus, that Phaedra gets made fun of here. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, as we know, uh, certainly from, from Bob, seeing Bob and like, don't look back and the crowd that he was running with, like being obvious was like one of the cardinal sins. Mm-hmm. It had to be interesting. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't interesting, you were sort of cast out uh, into the wilderness in a very sometimes cruel way. So I could see that to someone like in, you know, in Bob's position in 1965, someone who was obvious slash uninteresting that was a pretty bad thing you know there were probably other you know in probably in 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 bob's uh circles being cruel wasn't as bad as being obvious uh so i could see that if you want to insult somebody saying they're obvious was you know that's that's a really way to put them down so so yeah i could see that but that's that's marvelous about the chakras and that's (laughs) that's really cool i like all that that's really i mean the the bullets in her eyes and they fire is just one of those lines that you're like, good Lord, how did he not repurpose that for another song? That is such a great line. It, it just feels so evocative of so many things. And it's, it's just so amazing that he left it behind on a song that would never surface until Biograph. Yeah. Ought to be Dylan, you know, and just yeah, kind of man. leave Blind Willie McTell off the album. You know, it's just, it's interesting. You know, I do think that, you know, this is, this is not, one of his most important songs. But yet when you look at it, you know, it has these surreal choruses and a rather plaintive poppy kind of chorus. And it just, it invites investigation, you know? I mean, he, mm-hmm. he's a collector, you know, he collects things and it just happens to be that his library of fond, found objects is more interesting than ours. You know, it's <laughs> like that, that no direction home scene outside the pet store where he's mixing and matching all these little nonsensical terms right. on the pet store. I mean, he's doing that in his brain with all these figures that, you know, you know, whether it's characters from the Dolce Vita or, you know, French poets or Phaedra. And it's just fascinating. And I realized that this entire conversation is fairly nonsensical. That he was just throwing it down right. subconsciously, right? You know, but who cares? It's it's fun to get you know try to explore it anyway. Seems like oh, completely, yeah. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't matter what Bob was trying to convey at the time he recorded it. What we're discussing is how we feel about it now. Uh, I mean, that's that's the and I think Bob would say that too. It doesn't really matter what he was thinking of in 1965. It's what okay, you you're, I mean, obviously it was deemed worthy enough to put on Biograph because as we now know there's still tons of material that's never <laughs> been unearthed. So every time there's one of these, uh, you know, collections, whether they be Biograph or the bootleg series, we know that some choice is being made to put that on versus this other thing. Yeah. Because it seems like the amount of material that is in uh, the vault is nearly inexhaustible. Uh, I mean, they just announced the lineup for the new bootleg series, the springtime in New York. And there's still things that are not on there that I have bootlegs of. And you're like, my God, how much stuff did this guy record? So obviously, yeah, maybe Bob, you know, try, he did a couple of takes. There's the alternate versions on the cutting edge and stuff. And then it was left behind, never performed live, of course. But obviously when they were compiling biographs, somebody, Bob or Cameron Crowe or someone else said, no, 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 this is worthy of inclusion over at the moment. She's your lover now or something Mm -hmm. like that. So obviously somebody at Dylan's camp felt there was some worth to it. Absolutely. You know, I, that too late song that's coming out is I had not heard until it was released recently. And it's just like, how is that not at least on bootleg series one to three? I guess. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's a fantastic song. I yeah. mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's just, oh my gosh. So I like that. You know, th- this, how lucky are we 
that we get to find these songs that that come out decades later and in and it adds to it you know i was a huge stones fan since that you know since 81 and mtv and but they've not put out anything that has any lasting merit for the rest of my life since then oh but but rowdy ways for example you know i i 911 i went and bought love and theft you know after watching the news for 6 hours you mm-hmm. know when it came out but rowdy ways you know i was just thinking about it talking about it the other day it's like here's a new album that came out and a year later i couldn't talk about it for a year and then a year i said you know what I love a lot of Dylan albums, but I'm actually in love with this album. I think I'm in love with it. And it's so wonderful to be connected with an artist that is, that has mysteries and things that are, that are coming out still, but is still producing stuff that is going to resonate for the rest of your life. What a gift, you know, it's just amazing. It really is. Um, so, okay. Well, so that's, that's, I want to be your lover. Uh, like I said, I, I was amazed when you wrote me and you said you wanted to do this song. I was like, really? I, do, I mean, I like this song, but I was like, really? Wow. That's a, that's an obscure pick, but, but yeah, there's a lot going on here and it is, it is very fun to listen to. I went back and listened to it a bunch of times before this recording. And yeah, and like, it really does jump uh, in a way that a lot of Dylan's songs don't. And it's fun. It had probably had to be fun to play. I did find a, a cover version by Yola Tango, mm-hmm. uh, which is fun. I like I like their version again. Just the fact that that someone's bothering to cover this song, yeah. it's so obscure. But yet, there's a cover version of it out there, which again, I thought I thought was pretty good. It um, also might be the second fastest Dylan song, and I'm curious what if you know faster. But it must be Santa, which is hilarious. That, <laughs> I think is the fastest Dylan song. I think probably yeah. mixed up confusion is in there uh, too. Yeah. But I think must be Santa is probably the fastest. <laughs> this is it's in there. Breathless. It might be on the Olympic, you know, medals stand yeah. as a bronze. Who knows? But it's fast. Yeah, it is fast. It is very, very fast. I said it's it's a fun tune. So, all right. Well, Robert, thank you so much. Before we wrap up here, though, I do want to ask you this question I've been asking everybody lately. Um, let's say you're going to go see Bob live again. You're going to go. And uh, Bob comes to you uh, and he says, hey, Robert, uh, he says, uh, what song? Would you like to hear Bob open your first concert with any song, cover, original, whatever, whatever? He's asking you what you want to hear. What would you pick? <laughs> Thank you, Bob, for calling. Um, <laughs> I, I expected this call uh, only because I knew it was going to be on Pod Dylan. Uh, the, uh, I, you know, can you imagine? You know, uh, what nerve would I have to say a word? You know, it's just, <laughs> but I'm going to say some words. But he's asking you. He's asking, yeah, he's you. asking me. Yeah, he's okay. Asking you. Okay. Bob, I have an idea. I, I would like you to spend, is the, is the concert tonight? I would ask him. No, you got two weeks before the show in Cincinnati. Okay, great. I know what Cincinnati wants and deserves. And I, I have a suggestion for you. If you don't like it, I have a backup plan. So I'm suggesting you do a medley to start the concert of two songs. And it would begin with not you on the stage, the band's playing, they're going through the music, they're setting it up. It's a fairly mysterious start. You walk on stage and you sing the first refrain of the song. And then the lights come up and you direct the audience. I know this is crazy to direct the audience to sing along with you. Now that would be wigwam, which he's never played. I would love, I love wigwam so much. It fills me with such joy whenever I hear it. Let's, let's get wigwam on the stage in Cincinnati, Bob. And then, but don't do the whole thing. Go about like a minute and a half, two minutes. People are going to have so much fun and then go boom, right into, I want to be your lover. You've never played it live. Play it like, kind of like the way you did Tom Thumb and Shadow Kingdom or a little bit like things have changed a little bit. Um, 
you know, that kind of style, tone it down just a little bit, but it's a very upbeat song. Now, unless, you know, and if he doesn't like that, if it's not working out, just do Summer Days. I love Summer <laughs> Days. I want to hear Summer Days live and see it. That song is another one of those kind of songs. You talked That's about another it. super fast song. That's another yeah, it one is. There, super it, fast. It's not as fast. I checked. It's not as fast. <laughs> but it, it's, I love that that song like gave me hope in, in my life. I love that. I want to see that live. So if he doesn't like my ideas and I respect that because they're crazy, just throw out Summer Days. And I will be singing along when you talk about the hogs, you know, that'd be great, Bob. <laughs> I like how you art directed it too. Like, you know, <laughs> you, you know, you got the lights are off and then you come on, <laughs> did a whole thing. So, Hey, there is no wrong answer here. This is, this is Bob asking you what you want. So there is no wrong answer. So yeah, Wigwam would be, would be interesting. That's for sure. I, I, you'd have to use the lap scale, uh creatively to do the horns. La, 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 la. <laughs> I, I do like that song. I really do. Uh, it's absurd. I know, but I, you know, why not? Let's mix it up. No one wants to hear rainy day women. I love rainy day women. I don't want to hear it live again. Right. Well, let's, watchtower, you know, like, all right. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> right. Let's just mix it up. Hey, why not? Hey, that's it. in the last bunch of concerts, he dusting off Lenny Bruce, you know, and nobody would have expected that. So Wigwam yeah. is a little more obscure than that, but still, I mean, why, why not? So, okay. Great answer. Great answer, Robert. So, <laughs> well, all right. Well, again, thank you so much, Robert, for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was really fun talking to you. And so why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Well, I have a, a website with uh, my girlfriend. It's called tinkertowners.com. And I occasionally do videos on where I play a record and talk about it called Robert's record corner uh haven't in a year it's usually the stones i'm kind of scared to do dylan um but i'm thinking that i might start doing Dylan a little bit and then on twitter it used to be all travel i'm at read on travel r-e-i-d on travel but in the last couple of years i decided forget it i'm just going to follow people that i'm interested in and that's how i found dylan twitter and yes. so it's mostly dylan and pictures of oklahoma at these days but <laughs> read on travels other places outstanding all right well again thank you so much for coming on i very much appreciate it uh of course everybody you want to find back episodes of this show go to our website findwaterpodcast.com you can subscribe to the show on any of the podcatchers of your choice and if you want to support the find water podcast network just go to patreon.com slash fw podcast and there you can unlock various rewards one of which is if you name checked on the show of your choice so big thanks to robert ward steve cronin max hutzel sebastian crow george doherty and Joaquin Meckel for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you later. Bye. Rasputin, the Mad Monk, history's man of mystery. Now, at last, the real shocking story can be told. Rasputin, the mad monk, goaded by an insane lust to dominate and destroy. His mystic powers and physical strength made him the most dangerous man of his time. No one knew him. They only feared him. 